You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santa's Health. Hi, everyone. My name is Ross Wallace, and I'm a principal here at Santa's Health. Today, I am joined by Inder Singh and Dr. Sasha Batya to discuss digital healthcare amidst the pressures of a global pandemic. But before we dive in, let me introduce our guests. Inder Singh is the CEO of Kinsa, a public health company with a mission to stop the spread of contagious illness through earlier detection and earlier response. Prior to founding Kinsa, Inder was the executive vice president of the Clinton Foundation's Health Access Initiative. In this role, he helped 2 million people access life-saving HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis medications by negotiating lower-priced drugs and diagnostics in more than 70 developing nations, a fascinating foundation for social entrepreneurship. Dr. Sasha Batya is the Chief Medical Innovation Officer and the F.M. Hill Chair in Health System Solutions at Women's College Hospital here in Toronto. Dr. Batya leads rigorous evaluation of digital health tools designed to move new models and new policy approaches from theory to implementation. In his spare time, he's also an award-winning cardiologist who received both his MD and his MBA in healthcare administration from McGill University. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, so, Inder, if I can, I'd, I'd love to start okay. with you. Um, you know, I have often heard you describe Kinsa uh, as first and foremost a public health company uh, that's obviously fueled by technology, but not a technology company um, that's fueled by public health. Can you uh, can you expand a bit on that and, and talk about kind of the core value proposition and, and why it's so important that you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. I, you know, I'm a public health guy. We have a public health mission and our company is based in public health. And I think it's just to try and emphasize that our goals are one that advance public health. We're not trying to put tech before or at the center of the company. Um, you know, if I'm being really honest, I also want to avoid certain um, attribution that comes with technology companies. We often use the term disruptive innovation in technology. I'm not trying to disrupt my public health colleagues. I'm trying to help them. And I want us to be seen as a partner to public health institutions. And so part of it is just to really reemphasize internally and externally that our goals are very, very much around driving uh, better public health outcomes. Um, so again, I, it's, just, it's a positioning thing that I think is really important um, for us internally and externally. Maybe I'll just quickly kind of build on that point for a second if I can. The, um, you know, if you can talk a little bit about the actual technology solutions that you guys provide and you know, sure. maybe I'll ask you whether you sort of found a really interesting technological model and then looked at ways to adapt or purpose it in terms of addressing some of these challenges, or whether it was the challenges that gripped you and then you went and sought out some technology solutions, or whether it's a bit more fluid and, and uh, interdependent. It all started with a problem. Um, it started with a frustration. Um, and I'll pose the question that I posed almost nine years ago when I started Kinsa. How do you stop an outbreak before it becomes an epidemic or God forbid a pandemic, if you don't know where and when it's starting? Well, we all know today the answer to that question is you don't, you don't stop it. And if we need to get ahead and uh, prevent those outbreaks from becoming epidemics or pandemics, we need to understand where and when they're starting, how fast they're spreading, how severely they're impacting people. That was the problem statement we started with. Um, I grew really frustrated in my prior career in public health because I saw the way the world tries to allocate money and curb infectious disease. And the sad fact is they do it with zero information, zero real-time information about where and when disease is starting and who's being affected. Again, how do you target those vaccines, drugs, and diagnostics that work to the people who most need them if you don't know who they are? 
And you know, in our world today, we have so much real-time data in so many other aspects of our lives. We know how to get downtown fastest through Google Maps. We know what our neighbor's house costs through Zillow, Trulia, uh, Redfin, et cetera. Like, why don't we have a basic understanding of what's going around when it comes to the health situation? If we did that, it would not only help health systems and governments send the test kits in, target resources, send the virologists in where we're seeing an unusual outbreak. It would also help parents and individuals say, oh boy, what's going around my local area is more severe. Maybe I better take some more preventative actions. And we find that people respond to impending threats far more acutely than they respond to diffuse threats. Go get your vaccine. Well, I'm going to go get my vaccine if I think there's going to be a spike. You know, I'm certainly going to be more motivated to do it. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a systemic problem and a personal problem. And what, what we did is we tried to figure out how to get specific data. How do we talk to people within hours of symptom onset consistently, not just when their symptoms are more severe, consistently within hours of symptom onset? How do we get the missing ingredient data set? Where and when are symptoms starting? How fast are they spreading? And how bad are they? So to do that, we reimagined the thermometer. We took the only tool that's in the home, the only tool that's consistently used when illness strikes and consistently used, especially by parents whose children happen to be some of the primary spreaders of most infectious illnesses, as any parent knows, they get sick from their kids. So we took that product and we turned it into a triage tool. It connects into an app. It guides you as to when you need to see the doctor, when you need to go to the emergency room. It asks you a series of questions. Now, aggregate data across 1.5 million of them that are across North America which represents roughly 4 million users. And not everyone has to have a symptom for you to see clusters of illness lighting up on a map, a beacon going off saying there's an outbreak here. And then we deconvolute the signal. We say, hey, this, this, this light that's going off on the map, it's an outbreak and it doesn't look like cold and flu. It's got some anomalous attributes, send the test kits in, send, send the virologists in. And that's essentially what we've created um, at Kinsa. You can see the data. We've launched a, a website that shows some of our signals. We're trying to unpack them and give, provide even more at healthweather.us. That's the U.S. Um, health weather map that we've created. So that's basically the technology that underlies the problem we set out to create. And at the core of that is we know before the healthcare system does. We know before the healthcare system does where and when symptoms are spreading and how fast they're spreading. And I'll just add one more point on that. Like This is intuitive probably today. But in the context of COVID-19, maybe the first family member gets sick and has mildly fleeting symptoms. They go away after a day or two. They never enter the healthcare system because their, their symptoms went away. Person two contracts it from person one and is totally asymptomatic. Person three gets it and three to 14 days later after an incubation period, they actually show symptoms. The latest data I've seen is that once they get symptoms, five to eight days later, they enter the healthcare system. This is US CDC data, United States data. And so they finally entered the healthcare system. It's weeks too late. The flame of the outbreak has become an inferno and it's now not able to be contained. We get to see that mildly symptomatic spread early because we're talking to people consistently within hours of symptom onset. That's why this works. There's no other powerful reason. It's really simple. Sasha, listening to Andrew, he talked about the systemic level sort of complexities and the individual level implications. If there's a third point of the triangle, it might be the institutional level. And, and you're sitting in a spot at Women's College Hospital where you have both sort of a, a, a hospital role and relevance in terms of the work you do, as well as a system policy piece and a system technology and evaluation piece. 
Can you talk a little bit about um, the work at Women's around digital health and, and the ways in which it impacts and, and interacts with those different, uh, those different levels? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, um, Women's College Hospital is, a, is an ambulatory uh, academic health sciences center that focuses on developing, you know, new models of ambulatory care. Uh, and a big focus at Women's College is uh, digital, uh, digital healthcare. What we've uh, subsequently, uh, you know, an offshoot of, um, the, uh, of the strategic plan at Women's College has been the creation of the Institute for Health System Solutions and Virtual Care, which is a, um, an applied research institute we founded in 2013 to, um, you know, basically develop, implement, and evaluate new models of care, uh, often um, underpinned by digital technology, with the goal of improving uh, value uh, and uh, improving outcomes, uh, you know, uh, for patients with complex chronic diseases. And, and, and the key thing, you know, that uh, I think we've learned in the journey that we've had over the past number of years is there's a lot of um, technology for technology's sake. And what we're interested in is really about using technology to um, revamp and refine and really optimize health service delivery. And so, uh, which is a very different philosophy, to be honest, it's not just about dropping technology into, a, uh, into an ecosystem, into a clinical ecosystem, and then just hoping that people use it. It really is about service redesign. And so uh, we've really focused our attention in the past number of years on understanding the impact of uh, digitally enabled service redesign on importantly clinical outcomes. And so, you know, we care not that technology is used, but that technology can be utilized to um, change clinical outcomes for patients, improve the satisfaction that they have with uh, their healthcare system, and potentially to either increase capacity in the health system or reduce the unit cost of delivering services. And so, you know, a big part of that has been developing clinically relevant evaluative uh, strategies to sort of saying, you know, even though we're using that wearable to figure out if you've got atrial fibrillation, what is the value of that wearable in, this, in the healthcare system? Is it worth it for governments, for example, or for a company or a hospital or a person to purchase that wearable, does it actually change the trajectory of somebody's health outcome? So that's been the work that we've done. And over the past couple of years, we've started to work with the Ministry of Health through um, a funded project called the Center for Digital Health Evaluation, which has really been taking it up a level to now ask payers, meaning insurance plans, such as the Ontario Health Insurance Plan uh, or others to say, um, if you're going to make a multi-million or multi-billion dollar investment in uh, digital technology, what is the value to the health system in doing so? And so we've worked with them over the past couple of years to, to develop evaluation metrics and strategies to sort of provide evidence on the services that they're redesigning and providing recommendations as how, from a policy perspective, they could optimize the delivery of those services.
So um, you both talked, I think, really interestingly about the role, relevance, and importance of, of digital health. And that was obviously true even before COVID. But, you know, uh, Inder, if, if there is a disruption in the space right now, uh, it may not be uh, Kinsa in terms of how you want to complement and support folks in the public health space, but certainly COVID itself is a disruptor. I'm, I'm wondering if I can get you both, maybe Inder, we'll start with you, to, to talk a little bit on how you think probably pros and cons, um, the emergence and, and spread of the COVID pandemic has, has changed the landscape for digital health, um, probably made it compelling and, and more attractive and important in, in some ways, but also perhaps illuminated some of the challenges or complexities around access or evaluation or value at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's been an accelerator of certain kinds of um, service models and technologies, right? It's, it's been an absolute accelerator of telemedicine, right? In the context of any outbreak or epidemic, you don't want people going to the clinic. You don't want people going to the pharmacy. Why? Because if they're sick, they're going to spread it to others. You want medicine that comes to you in your place, to you. It comes to you. There's technologies that are available today that will allow the healthcare system to come to people. Some of these are wearable technologies. Some of these are what they would put in the classification of remote monitoring technologies. I don't like that term because it implies that someone's a patient already. We need to make sure that we're going to people when they have a change in health status. Um, things like a connected thermometer, right? You're not yet a patient. You're still in the home. You're using it, but there's a change in health status, and that can now ping the system to outreach to you saying, would you like some help, or would you like to talk to a doctor now um, without, you know, disrupting or creating any problems with privacy, right? It, 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 we can control for all those kinds of things. So I think it's, I think COVID-19 has been a massive accelerator of telemedicine and telemedicine tools. I think it's highlighted the need for us to think differently and, and further accelerate this process of bringing healthcare to people as opposed to people having to go to healthcare. Um, and I'm excited about those opportunities. I'm excited about that because that's a model that needs to happen. It needs to accelerate. And a pandemic brings to light how important that is, right? Um, so I think those are a couple trends that I see um, that truly have, uh, have caused what I think is a fundamental change to the way we think about healthcare going forward. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think similar to Inder's point, like I think telemedicine or virtual care has been uh, massively accelerated in the pandemic you know, has accelerated their adoption in a massive way. Prior to the pandemic, um, I was, you know, having to proselytize and advocate for increasing the adoption of virtual care. So, you know, you know, we know that prior to March of 2020, um, probably less than 10% by rough estimates of, physician, of, of care uh, was being provided virtually, and that's not just in Canada. That's 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 other places. There are pockets of excellence, or pockets where maybe they were doing it a bit more. Kaiser in the U.S. was an example, but by and large, we were looking at pretty a pretty minor. It was a pretty niche boutique sort of um, uh, uh, you know tool, and then the pandemic hits, and suddenly now we're looking at you know by reports and by preliminary data that we have about 80, you know, about 70% of care uh, and about 90% of physicians are actually providing care virtually. So, you know, before we were talking about the issue being, well, how do we get doctors to use virtual care? And now we're like, well, that problem's gone. Hmm. So, um, 
So now we're in a different boat, which is we're coming at it from the opposite side of the curve, where uh, now that the pandemic created this fantastic opportunity, if one can say that there was a positive thing about the pandemic, to, create, to break down a barrier of adoption for virtual care. But the question to me will now be, okay, so where do we go from here? You know, uh, what's the right amount of care that should be delivered virtually? And I think you probably started to hear about some of the backlash around the, 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 the loss of personal connection that people have, you know, with their provider, you know, the uh, challenges around, um, you know, uh, uh, privacy and equity and a number of a number of factors. And so we just need to now think a little bit about, you know, what does the steady state look like? Because I don't think we're going to sit at 70% plus, but I don't think we're going to go back to 10. So we're in this very weird gray zone where, you know, I'm not sure what direction, uh, you know, um, our system is going to take but it's not going to stay, I think, where it is. And I think it does provide us an opportunity to sort of shape it going forward. Yeah, if I might add, I mean, I think there's certain challenges that have become very, very apparent and certain opportunities that have also become very, very apparent, right? Challenges are simple things, can be very simple things like, how do I get a proper reading? Uh, how do I look in your, in your throat um, through a telemedicine visit? How do I look in your ear in a telemedicine visit? Do I trust the data that's coming out of any tools that are being transmitted by these telemedicine tools, like those are challenges. Those are fundamental challenges that we need to figure out. But there's also these opportunities, right? Now, can I do, not can I just do individual diagnosis and treatment better, but how do I treat populations, right? So I'll talk to that for just a moment about some of the work that we've done, right? When you can aggregate data on the population, to understand trends in the population, now you're starting to think about doing real public health, being able to respond at a population level to help prevent or you know, attack the problem in a, in a broader way, right? So as an example, through our data, through this network of 1.5 million thermometers, primarily in the U US here, we're able to not just see hotspots of where illness is occurring, we can now predict the entire flu incidence curve 12 to 20 weeks ahead of time on a city by city basis. Prior to this network setting being set up, the best you could do was three weeks out at a state or multi-state level. You got a little bit of advance warning. Now I can tell you when the, when the exact peak of flu season is so that we can reach out to our congestive heart failure patients, to our diabetes patients, to our chronically ill and elderly and say, guys, you're the ones that are going to get impacted by these acute respiratory illness. You're going to be the ones that have challenges with the flu. So maybe during these two weeks that are coming up here in eight weeks time, you should stay inside. Or maybe we can get you your medicines, your, the medicines for your congestive heart failure, your diabetes in advance. We don't normally refill until X time, but we can get all of that to you in advance so you can stay home. So there's these population level things that you can start doing because you can aggregate data anonymously across the population. That's the area that we plan. And those are the kinds of opportunities that avail themselves of this much more rapid movement that um, is a, you know, this transition to virtual care that is being uh, fueled by COVID-19's tailwinds. Yeah. You know, I, I just pick up on that. I think that's a great point uh, that Inder made. And I think it brings into sort of an unintended consequence. That's a, a pretty 
positive thing, which is around um, data and around the power that we're going to have, particularly as it pertains to cons like consumer data. So, you know, for a long, long time, you know, medical data was predominantly in electronic medical records and it was in physicians offices and it was controlled by hospitals and people and, and, and providers. Um, you know, with Kinza or other wearables, whether you have a Fitbit or, an, you know, an iWatch or whatever, there's more and more and more data that's actually sitting outside of hospitals and, and the healthcare system generally. And there's a whole um, host of data that was never available to the healthcare system that is now avail potentially available to it. It's not available, you know, it's not completely seamless, um, but there's more data out there. And if we can harness that data, we can start to do the things that Indra is sort of talking about across multiple diseases. Because remember, for people with chronic disease like diabetes, heart failure, coronary disease, mental health, those sorts of things, the amount of times they interact with the healthcare system is still a, a minuscule fraction of the amount of time they actually live with the disease. And so management is still predominantly themselves or their caregivers. We have no insight as a healthcare system as to what happens when our patients leave our clinics. So our ability to see what else is happening and to have insights allows us potentially, again, when you layer on big data, AI type analytics, allows us potentially to have some pretty powerful metrics, algorithms, processes to, you know, whether it be detect population level trends, but also potentially be able to predict is an individual about to have an acute exacerbation of their chronic illness? And can we intervene early to prevent that from happening? So there's been some work in that area. It's still pretty rudimentary in part because we haven't done this at as broad a scale as you know, what Inder and others are talking about with some of the wearables that are out there now. But the fact that now we've had this mass adoption and are gonna continue to have this mass adoption uh, of this type of technology, the possibilities of this are, are pretty large. Um, obviously, one of the sort of key steps between sort of the generation of, of transformational technology and giving clinicians and patients the tools they need to deliver that kind of care, that optimize that care, revolutionize that care, um, often that involves the messy business of procurement. And, you know, Inder, I'm going to turn to you for a second, see if you can talk a little bit about some of the challenges you faced in terms of navigating through procurement complexities, and, and maybe even if you could kind of pull a a couple of best practices or key success factors that you think um, those of us who think about these procurement complexities every day should sort of take away in terms of, of how we ensure that the post-COVID technology adoption landscape is supported rather than undermined by uh, a new rather than an archaic uh, procurement system. Yeah, I mean, the first problem you run into with some of these technologies is how are they used, why should they be used, and who should be using them, right? Because they're sufficiently different um, in, in terms of, the, of the, the value that they can create, right? A lot of these products we're talking about are connected products, telemedicine services, wearables, these are connected products. And so you know, there's just a fundamental different value. I'll give you like a, a very transparent assessment, right? People often think of us as just a thermometer. Well, 
It does far more than that. We're talking about a connected medical guidance system that helps you make decisions about when you see the doctor, connect into the doctor. You know, there's this conversation that's going on around high throughput temperature screenings in lobbies, in restaurants, in bars. And it's, it's, a, it's a really thoughtful, there's a, there's a, there is a place in the world for that that is important. But we also know that those kinds of high throughput situations are A, rife with errors. It's really hard to get a good temperature reading. And B, it is um, too late. By the time someone in the lobby, they've spread it already, right? The advantage of a network like ours is you take it at home and you can see pockets of illness spread and guide people when they're still in the home. So we're, we're trying to make sure that we communicate the fundamental value of the product who should get it? And that's the first challenge with procurement processes, processes, especially at government levels, but certainly also at the health system level. Why am I buying this? Where do you fit in? Like, how do I make sure I understand the value proposition? Um, those are challenges, right? We're, we're faced with this really interesting situation where there's a wall in front of us of traditional folks that work in public health and healthcare saying, well, a thermometer is this. And we're trying to tell you, no, it's not. It is something else. There's a whole group of people lining up behind us saying, the value of this is an early detection, early warning of outbreaks. The value of this is in guidance to the individual. The value of this is that you can talk to underserved communities. We have such high activation and use by underserved communities that don't have traditional access to healthcare, where now you can speak to them, right? You can, there's a connection point between the underserved community and the healthcare system that never existed before. These are the kinds of value propositions that this kind of new technology, this new product that we've invented avail themselves to. Let's use it in those ways. Whereas traditional procurement may not even think about that. It's not their job to think about it. Their job is to figure out how to source products. And so we're running into this, where do we go to, who do we talk to problem? On top of that, it is, you know, how do we distribute, right? Because procurement is, reflects the existing systems that were there for many years. I'm going to distribute this to hospitals. I'm going to distribute these to uh, first responder networks, right? Great. But if you're trying to be able to help people in their homes, how am I going to distribute to product to people in their homes? Am I going to ship it to them? Do I even know who they are? Do I do random sampling? Like these are all the challenges that come up with these kinds of new technologies. You know, if we had 500,000 thermometers in Canada, we could hotspot down to precise geographic areas and know where COVID was spreading three weeks in advance. We've proven that in the United States. We can see COVID surges three weeks in advance. Could you imagine what New York City could have done with three weeks advance notice? Can you imagine what certain provinces and towns could do with three weeks advance notice? There's a Columbia research study that came out about New York City saying, had they implemented their stay-at-home order one week earlier, it would have saved 36,000 lives and $1 billion. We saw it in New York City specifically 18 days in advance. So that would have given people enough time to evaluate it and implement that order. That's the kind of value that is availed from these kinds of technologies. It's the reason we want to roll out in Canada, the reason we need to roll out in Canada. It's, it's, this is the kind of thing that is available and we need to activate it now. And the procurement processes, the challenge with them is that they're still reflecting traditional products and, and they should, they need to do that. But there needs to be a, a way to think about these new kinds of technologies how to get them through the procurement cycle, how to distribute them so that we can take advantage of the value of these new technologies.
proven value, not new value. We're not talking about things that are being invented right now. We're talking about things that have been out there for eight, 10 years that already have a proven track record with a scientific body of literature supporting. So Sasha, based on that, smarter, more thoughtful, more innovative procurement systems in Canada. Thoughts on how we, how we build off that foundation, continuing to sort of deliver the kind of value that Indra talked about, the sort of old school value, um, while making sure we have a chance for a new school value too. How, how do we do that here? Yeah, it, it's a great, great point. And it's the, it's the conundrum that I think a lot of innovative companies, uh, you know, struggle with. It, and in fact, part of the work that we do is to create, you know, an evaluation. Part of creating an evaluation framework is uh, really also helping both governments and companies understand what the value proposition is for the technologies that they want to that they that they want to procure, and creating a path to procurement for uh, companies and technologies that add value to the healthcare system. And so the problem, I think, often in procurement for these innovative technologies is, um, and, and it's, and it's, you know, and, and government tries to do the right thing and companies try to do the right thing, but it's, it's often a bit of a loss in translation thing. Like it's like, um, understanding what the business model is for, uh, the technologies is not always easy. You know, we think about, you know, say, uh, drug like say you think about drugs in the healthcare system. There's a pretty clear path to how drugs get, um, you know, listed, uh, you know, both through, you know, both get regulated and then get listed. Um, and there's pretty clear, uh, you know, objectives and outcomes, you know, around a drug providing some efficacy. For digital technologies, that's not really clear. And, um, you know, uh, I think one of the issues, you know, becomes how, like, if you build, like what should be the ultimate metric of success or when do you know that a technology creates value uh, for, um, you know, a healthcare system? You know, you have to be able to demonstrate objectively that you're, that spending, you know, X amounts of money on uh, this technology will uh, objectively lead to some benefit somewhere else down the line. And that, I think that has to be objectively proven. So um, I'm going to ask you guys each one question, maybe just to sort of distill where you've, where you've come from through this conversation and where you'd like to make sure you, you leave us. Um, and maybe just as a, as a um, you know, I'll start with you, Inder, if I can. You know, if we had the fortune of, of bringing this group back together to, to converse, let's say, a year from now or two years from now, you know, what, are you, what will you be looking at in the interim? The metrics, the measurements, the indicators to kind of gauge the progress of health systems in terms of better creating opportunities to benefit from the kind of technological advances that, that Kinsa represents. How, how are you going to know that we are individually and collectively getting better at this? What are you going to watch for? I'm going to focus on the very specific area that we work in, which is early warning. Right? This idea of being able to create an early warning system for outbreaks, because again, that's the place that we believe we can play a really, really important role. And it's particularly acutely important in the context of a pandemic. You got to know where there's going to be these outbreaks so that you can get ahead of the curve. I mean, if I'm looking at that, I'm looking at A, how, many, how much focus has there been by government on this concept of early warning? Because right now, you know, if I if I'm being really honest, in, in the U.S., 
I can't find a US agency that really has this as a focal point. There's their focus on testing and contact tracing and treatment and isolation and vaccine development and plasma you know, donations, but there's not this focus on early warning, not, not a concentrated focus. So I'd wanna say how many dollars are available, how, ma how many efforts um, are there out there. I'd wanna see how many health systems are adopting these new data streams that Kinsa and others make available for purposes of early warning. Are they using them to plan where they're gonna do surgeries or shut down surgeries? Um, you know, if it was us specifically and we were part of the solution, I'd wanna say, did we reach the minimum threshold number of active users to actually do effective early warning? Are we at 500,000 or more in Canada? Are we at, you know, right now in the United States, we've got a million and a half. If we had five, if we had five, we could hotspot down to precise geographic areas, right? Zip code level and population centers. Imagine what you could do if you saw an outbreak at a zip code in real time. You could contain it while it was still aflame before it became an inferno. So if it was us specifically, those are the metrics that I'm looking at for our own work on early warning. But those are the kind of things that I'd be looking at a year from now, because I think this particular topic of early warning is essential to our response to the, to, 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 to the outbreak. It is not an or. You're not going to give up testing and give up vaccines. It's an and. If we have an early warning system, all of those next steps become more efficient. We don't need to contact trace back four weeks. Maybe we contact trace back one week because we caught it within early symptoms. Like everything else becomes more efficient and the limited resources we have, the limited vaccines that we will develop, the limited plasma that we have, we can direct it to the areas that most need it. So for me, I'm focusing on early warning and I want to look at results one year down the line, not just for us as a company, but for us as you know, countries and systems and like how much focus has been on that particular point. Um, Sasha, whether you're wearing your sort of hospital lens or your system lens or even your cardiology lens, what, um, how are you going to track the next year and what are you going to be looking for? So I think, you know, the next year, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting one. I think digital health virtual care has become sort of the bell of the ball, right? And I think commercially, we're seeing uh, a lot of big players put substantial amounts of investment into uh, various types of virtual care models. So, you know, you saw, um, you know, Teladoc in the United States, uh, you know, uh, you know, merging, you've seen Amazon put, you know, put out a, wear, uh, a wearable, um, you've seen uh, massive amounts of uh, fundraising, you know, and venture cap going into a number of different digital companies. So I think uh, a lot of you know, smart money is being put into sort of various types of digital companies. The question now is how, what's going to happen uh, in the next year? And is this momentum going to be picked up? As you know, there's more commercial dollars, there is still going to be a continued need for virtual. So even, you know, until there is a vaccine, um, you know, uh, and even when there is, I think there is still going to be an absolute need to physically distance. Um, and as a consequence, virtual care is going to continue. So when you think, and then, and then the, the other thing is we don't know what will, whether or not there will be a so-called second wave or, you know, and, and as a consequence, there'll be again another necessity 
to lock down uh, as we had. So when you think about all these forces coming together, the question ultimately is from an adoption perspective, where do we see virtual care sitting in the next year? Is it gonna be 70, 80%? Is it gonna be 10%? I think it's probably gonna be half of the care that's provided on average. And then I think the, the, the real pressure um, is going to be on the payers uh, to sort of say, how do we fund this type of thing? How do we fund companies like, like Inder's suggesting or, or like, like Kinza? How do we think about building wearables into the business model? How are we going to create that, that create a sustainability model for this kind of work? And then, you know, as a hospital and as researchers, we also then need to have a responsibility to say, okay, well, how do we actually integrate these into our care to do it well and safely and effectively? So with that, um, I will bring this conversation to a close only because I want to be respectful of your time and, and um, to thank you both, Inder and Sasha, for sharing your thoughts, your perspectives, your passion over the last few minutes. Ross, can I, I don't know if you still have time for two more minutes, but can I make a call to action for Canada? Would you feel Please. comfortable? I'd like to make a call to action for Canada. Canada has an opportunity to roll out a world-class, robust, early warning system for outbreaks, to lead the world. It is a country where we could do this within months at a national level. We're currently working with five states in the United States, three major cities to do this in the United States. We're going piecemeal across the U.S. We would love to do this with Canada. And we already have some corporate sponsorship to launch. Lysol's paying us to give away thermometers to underserved communities and public school communities across Canada, but that's not enough. If we can add to that, we could create a healthweather.ca, just like a healthweather.us, and do effective three-week lead time early warning for, for the country down to geographically precise areas that would enable early containment saving lives and livelihoods. That's my, that's my challenge to, to citizens and to the government of Canada. Let's stand up what I believe is basic, necessary 21st century infrastructure for early warning of outbreaks. Because this is not the last time this is going to happen. The question is not if, it is when. Andrew, that is a, a gauntlet eloquently dropped. I hope we, uh, I hope we circle back with you both uh, on the way toward that one year out timeframe and hope to hear more about your respective and your collective efforts to um, ensure that we are optimizing the use of technology during this pandemic and beyond. So thank you both for making the time. Thank you both for your insights and your wisdom. And uh, I hope uh, we're in touch again. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santas Health. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs. <laughs>